For December 16th, 2013, it's the Overthinking and Podcast, episode 285, The Hobbit. You're the man now, Schmog. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with podcast stalwarts, uh, Peter Fenzel and Mark Lee. Why, why, uh, why keep people in suspense, guys? You know, let's, uh, let's, it's not like a big reveal. Like the reveal of smog. Smog! Smog! <laughs> oh, sorry. It's pronounced smog, spelled S M O G. Smog. Ah, S M O G. No, I was, asked, I was talking about this before. Do you think people knew, was smog like smoke and fog, the urban pollution phenomenon, a thing when uh, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit? Or did people call it him smog then and, instead of smog? Or did they call him smog back when uh, The Hobbit first hit the shelves? I had thought, and you know, give, give me a chance to, uh, to Google this, but I had thought that London had smog, had urban pollution ever since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, you know, you've seen um, uh, Mary Poppins, right? Soot, there's chimney sweeps and whatnot. They're dirty. Oh, yeah, but didn't they call it London Fog like the jackets? <laughs> <laughs> Not London Smow. <laughs> oh, so I'm enjoying this entirely. I wanna, yeah, no, I love the name. It's a, it's a prime candidate for my Sean Connery game. Uh, the game is where you say things like Sean Connery. And, uh, you know, so Smaug, yes, Smaug. Yes. Desolation of Schmau. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chimney. <laughs> Matt, Matt, how do you win this game? <laughs> Here, you say, you're the man now, Schmaug. <laughs> Congratulations, you are the winner. Um, all right, uh, obviously we're going to talk about The Hobbit 2. Or I guess, it's, I guess The Hobbit is the name for the entire uh, three-film uh series the the yeah. the work that spans three films and the chapter titles are uh uh oh what was Unex- the first unexpected, one unexpected, unexpected journey. journey uh desolation of of Schmaug is the one that I think it's actually called large roman numeral lord of the rings large roman numeral negative 1 the <laughs> hobbit b <laughs> the desolation of smog <laughs> lowercase or arabic numeral 1 <laughs> Right, and you have to remember to indent uh, every time when in that in that outline form. Uh, so we're going to um, we're going to talk about Schmaug. You're the man now, Schmaug. We're going to talk about Schmaug. Um, but uh, uh, another man, uh, a different man, with a uh, an inimitable uh, voice. Uh, uh, has actually passed away. Just as as we record this, the news is still fresh that that Peter O'Toole, star of uh, uh, stage in the silver screen, has died. Um, I think he was eighty one. I I don't know if you want information on things. Go to a different podcast. We we bring you the essential truth of the matter, even if our facts are a little <laughs> are a little iffy. Uh, like like any good historical film, like you know Lawrence of Arabia, say. Um, so uh, panel in honor of Peter O'Toole's passing, the the great actor. Um, what is your favorite Peter O'Toole role? Uh, and so that we can talk about the man and his work a little bit, because this was uh, an actor who worked, uh, an actor after our own heart here on Overthinking It. So, Pete Fenzel, over to you. 
I gotta go with the Tudors. I just gotta go. He plays, uh, he pay, plays the Pope. Uh, the second Pope in the Tudors. Uh, is it Pope? I think it's... He's listed on IMDb. Yeah, he's Pope Paul III is what he's playing. Uh, the Farnese Pope. Uh, and he's the Pope who finally excommunicates Henry VIII for his shenanigans with uh, Anne Boleyn. And he just relishes... I mean... If if his if 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 Sinatra's life you know became a fine wine once he got past his like thirty fifth year like the the lines that Peter O'Toole speaks in his eighties in this like racy after dark like Showtime television show <laughs> every line is just a a crystalline sambuca of just devilish smarmy joy right like it's just they just roll off his tongue he's just like he's like he's He's both kind of like tremendously powerful and very continental and delicate and terrifying, <laughs> right? Like it's just like it's like it's like every unit of meaning has to, he has to unhinge his jaw in order for it to like fit out of his mouth. It is so just pregnant, you know, pregnant with purpose. Uh, it's just it's it's just it's a classic role that could be nothing that's turned into like role that's almost distractingly and inappropriately awesome <laughs> <laughs> i'm not confident it makes the show all that much better but at the same time uh it's it's it is amazing and it's wonderful to watch uh he has no doubt had more significant roles but perhaps none that relied quite so much on his own unique gifts and passions <laughs> as uh, the pope and the tutors pete i've only seen like maybe one or two episodes of the tutors and i know i know enough about it that there's copious amounts of boobage Yes. And I also know that in spite of Peter O'Toole playing the Pope, um, these are the kind of shows where being a man of the cloth doesn't prevent you from having boobage to enjoy boobage, right? So my question is, does Peter O'Toole have boobies waved in his face in the show? No. God, no, Mark. Like, no, no, no. Peter O'Toole is above that. He is, like, so far above that in this movie. Uh, he, like, looks down disdainfully on other popes in other racy historical period dramas <laughs> as being classless. Um, classless. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah no, excellent. Sure. <laughs> and what, way, way to go with a, with a premium cable level of TNA uh, and, um, you know, and the great Peter O'Toole uh, together. Way to, way to bring together, you know, two of everybody's favorite interests. I think it's how he would have wanted it. <laughs> uh mark lee you are next uh pick peter o'toole role yeah i'm gonna have to go with lawrence of arabia uh just because that's i'm not super familiar with a lot of lauren of the uh, of peter o'toole's work uh also because you know lawrence of arabia is a classic movie this that and the other um but uh, what I'm going to bring to this conversation is the two interesting uh, uh, ways of thinking about uh, Florence of Arabia. One is that I have fond memories in high school of like making the hell out while watching this movie, and I just <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, did you make it out? <laughs> I was making it out. Yes, that's a callback to the previous overthinking it uh, podcast episode for all of you um, those keeping score at home. Um, I feel like I made a real contribution to like the the, the pantheon of movies. Uh, uh, to which teenagers have made out to, right? I would I would like to imagine that that's like an, it, it, that's a very low percentage movie there, right? Like Dirty Dancing, sure, like you know yeah. everybody and their sister has done that, um, but Lawrence of Arabia, like I don't know, I want to, I think that's like right in there around like the stories of people who have made out to like the Seventh Seal or something like that, right? <laughs> it's like I can just envision Mark being like, um, 
Uh, excuse me, uh, honey, we have something that we need to do today, and it's going to take four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Lords of Rivia is quite that long, but <laughs> perhaps you stayed past the credits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it provides a lot of time for making it out, um, making, which is great. Yeah. Nice. So um, the other thing I really love about Lawrence of Arabia is the one scene that you all might remember is after they've taken Aqaba and they tra- – Lawrence, T. Lawrence and uh, one, of, one of his companions trudge through the desert for a very – very long time. They finally reach back to the, they reach the the British base, right? And then, um, basically, uh, T. Lawrence, um, very authoritatively asks for some cold beverage. I believe it's an iced tea or lemonade uh, for himself and his companion. And uh, when he gulps down that cold beverage, there at that moment, you see and you know true thirst. Yeah, right. You know this exactly. I'm talking about. He's just gulping it down with like every fiber of his being and after like the 30 minutes that you've seen him wander through the desert you are right there with him and you really want something cold to drink as well <laughs> that's the power of acting right there that's how you know it's your actor he makes you thirst uh well mine is mine is not nearly as uh, as elevated as that i have to say though i've i've spent part of the afternoon watching peter o'toole clips on youtube and there's a great clip that i will try to find uh of him on letterman i think it may have been um embedded on gawker which is why i saw it uh which is i suppose an embarrassing revelation but there it is um and uh he is on david letterman's show and he arrives on a camel and uh <laughs> Wow. <laughs> he is smoking a cigarette in a long cigarette holder. <laughs> and he dismounts the camel. Uh, Letterman brings him a stepladder to get off the camel, but he doesn't care, right? Peter O'Toole doesn't care. He swings his leg over the camel and drops right onto the ground, uh, grabs a can of Heineken, cracks it open, hands it to the camel, and the camel uh, tilts its neck back and drinks all the Heineken. I'm not even sure how you could do this on television because it was only a few years ago. Um, I think he was, I think it was, it may, it may be longer than that, because I don't think you could get away with that now. Camel drinks all the Heineken, drops the, the, um, the can on the ground, and Peter O'Toole looks over at Letterman, waves his cigarette holder around, and says, I believe you call that a stupid pet trick. <laughs> <laughs> and it, oh, you know. Sick transit, Gloria Mundy, folks. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, and just the the sense of the sense of style, uh, and the 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 sense he had probably because he was a uh, he he was a man um, whose his reputation went anyway. He was one of those actors who uh, did enjoy lifting a glass, and uh, maybe it was because he was just uh, uh, you know well lubricated all the time but he he always had this look on his face as though everything were a sort of pleasant and amusing surprise to him mm-hmm. um anyway so my uh uh my pick for a peter o'toole role is king ralph the 1991 john goodman vehicle um that uh featured uh john goodman as an american who becomes king of england uh because apparently his descent um, uh, sort sort of the way that Matthew Crowley becomes the heir to the uh, the heir to um, uh, 
I, well, uh, to the Abbey. Downton, to Downton Abbey. <laughs> Downton Abbey. I was trying to think, is that does the house have a different name than the show? And the answer is no. the show is, no. is the same name as the house in the show. It's called Downton Abbey. Got it. <laughs> All right. A, period, Roman numeral one, uh, <laughs> small letter A, Arabic numeral one, Downton Abbey. Um, the recrawling. Uh, so um, he becomes king of England and uh, is ably assisted by his uh, uh, advisor, Sir Cedric Charles Willingham, who uh, is played by Peter O'Toole, who turns out to be the guy who should be the heir, but he didn't want to be king for a variety of personal reasons that really don't matter in retrospect. Um, and spoiler alert, he becomes king at the end uh, when when King Ralph abdicates, having, um, having restored uh, Britain's might as a center of manufacturing of auto <laughs> of auto manufacturing <laughs> the uh, the american comes in does this and then pieces out uh because what was he's... he like a supply chain and manufacturing consultant is that what were the skills to which he to which he accomplished i think he like worked in detroit or something like that I oh think he okay on yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense yeah okay sure so uh automobile. <laughs> All right. Well, um may uh may Peter O'Toole rest in peace and uh you know, we will not we will not see his like again. He was a good man, a good actor, and we will not see his light again. Like again, and now his watch is ended. Wow. Um <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I'm reasonably well lubricated. Uh <laughs> Let's uh, let's move on to smoke. Smoke. It's smoke. All right. I wish I had the phonological symbols that I that I could write down. If you know the phonological symbols to properly write the name smaug, sound off in the sound off in the comments. <laughs> Ow. Ow. Um. So yes, uh, the um. The, the uh, alternative question of the week that I was thinking of was uh, come up with a name as unlikely as Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, Hapornith <laughs> Persian. But then it is. So that's the thing is that the cadence of it, you're so drawn into that anapestic cadence that you want to come up with something that sounds just like it. Like Engel, Engelbert Humperdinck, right? Like Engelbert Humperdinck. And there's like a topological form of. In like topological mathematics, Engelbert Humperdinck and Benedict Cumberbatch are like equivalent, right? So I, like, I, Ernest, Ernest P. Shackleton is also another good one. <laughs> I, yeah, and I started a whole thread in the overthinking it forums about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, diadactyls uh, or double dactyls I guess is the name of the form because it's it's diadactylic right higgledy piggledy Benedict Cumberbatch oh you're right it's it's dactyls it's not antipest it depends on I mean it depends on how you start the line you know uh, right the Benedict Cumberbatch role in this movie is I mean that's antipestic so um, So uh well, I guess I guess we've started with uh with Mr. Cumberbatch. So uh what did you think of Mr. Cumberbatch's work uh in um in Desolation of Smaug? Can I use an adjective? Yes. It's not typically used for acting. It was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like it's fitting that Peter O'Toole was the lead-in for this because I kind of feel like Peter O'Toole was to human beings what the Desolation of Smaug was to like the Lord of the Rings franchise. <laughs> Just like, except except for the whole being excellent thing, which I mean I still enjoyed it. 
<laughs> but it just just relishes it, right? It just the whole movie is just relishing everything flavorful and delicious about the Hobbit story. And uh, one of them is that there's this totally freaking awesome dragon in the story, which. Um, yeah, like, is actually totally freaking awesome, which I totally did not expect it to be as such, right? Like, and he's, you're right, yeah, Mark. He's yeah, just, in, a, in a day and age in which we were kind of jaded by monstrous CGI creations and just fantastical things being thrown at us on the screen, right? Like, we still managed to be impressed by the rendering of Smaug yes. on the screen. Like, both because for the visuals as well as in a large part due to Benedict Cumberbatch's vocal performance. Yeah. And I feel like he did a great job. One of the tough things about the character of Smaug, and really the character of dragons in general, and you know, if you want to talk about dragons in Game of Thrones, which we won't get into because we won't, we won't give any Game of Thrones spoilers other than that there are dragons in it. But uh, with this will have Desolation of Smaug spoilers. Um, don't worry, not that much finishes in the movie. But um, you know, dragons in the sort of sword and sorcery, Tolkien, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Mithai, uh, Mythos, Mythes. I don't know whether it's a third declension Latin noun or a Greek. Probably Greek. It's got to be Greek. Never mind. But um, they're really smart. Like dragons are supposed to be like super intelligent in a bunch of these different uh, f- frameworks, and it is always kind of tough and or useless, meaningless in movies to make dragons that are like super intelligent. Um, right, and it's like it's very difficult to communicate it because when the dragon's on screen, you want to look at the dragon flying, you want to have the dragon do awesome things, and also the dialogue in these sorts of things is often just so straightforward that it's really hard to communicate why you know the dragon being smart. And I feel like um, that's the most impressive achievement that I thought I felt, other than just the, the depth and resonance of his voice and and the urgency and anger, but even more than the sort of urgency and 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 you know, evil of his voice. But just the idea that he was able, when he was telling Bilbo all these things that he really shouldn't know, you know, like, oh, the, the dwarves are right outside. It's Thor and Oakenshield, and he's here, and he's waiting outside to come in. Now, we don't know, we don't see any information that would lead us to think that Smaug has a way of knowing this. But Smaug is a super intelligent dragon. And Benedict Cumberbatch is, is able, you can sort of hear the interiority of Smaug's reasoning. You can sort of hear the Smaug's kind of like piecing together of these, like the, all the, the details he has access to, however he has access to them. Well, I mean, he, he took third grade English, so he uses context clues to figure out what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just like, well, there's only so many dwarves left because I ate all the rest of them. So therefore, <laughs> yeah. it must be one of those. Um, I was wondering if that was it. Is it like, does Smaug know that it's Thorn Oakenshield? Because all, literally all of the other ones who would do this are dead because uh, he personally ate them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but we do, the thing is, I thought it was courageous to still keep those lines in the movie and not explain why Smaug knew any of it and to kind of rely on the performance to make it seem credible. Although this is not a movie that is overly concerned with credibility in the slightest. In fact, I would say it is like, <laughs> you know, it, it throws credibility, you know, like a scarf into the wind to float gleefully on its way. And settle. I thought you were going to say it throws credibility into a barrel, which it then sends down the river and through <laughs> rapids and waterfalls. So, I, the, 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 really, the one-liner on this is that the Desolation of Smaug is a, is a mediocre to passable Tolkien movie and probably the best barrel movie ever made. Before we jump into that barrel and, and follow the rest of the barrels <laughs> down the river, we should keep talking about Smaug, yeah. the, the, the character of the dragon itself. And um, I have this idea that I want to put out there that sort of encompasses a lot of different themes of this movie. So let me try to set the cognitive agenda, as I like to say, on this show. 
Um, so the dragon Smaug is very much defined by his greed, right? He loves the gold. He lusts after the gold. And he has this huge cache of, 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 of treasure right, that he took from the dwarves. And the dwarves um, you know, uh, were brought that up sort of upon themselves because they were so greedy themselves, right? Correct. Um, so excess and greed is very much a theme of this movie, and you see it um, uh, within uh, the story of the movie and the characters themselves. Like the dragons, lust for gold. The dwarves, the lust for gold. Um, Thorn, in particular, lust for power and the gold, right? Um, and I guess also... Lust for, like, the Tammany Hall political machine of Lake Town or wherever it is he manages <laughs> to maintain control. Um, <laughs> to a certain extent, Bilbo also lusts after the ring. Um, but uh, if you... T- I like to look at this you know, study of lusting for power and green things like that as um, a metaphor, which can extend to all sorts of other different things, right? The studio has a lust for green, lust for gold and profit, right? By chopping up this movie into three parts. The filmmaker uh, exercises his lust for filmmaking and for special effects by just going way overboard with the CGI and the amazing camera tricks that sort of like do this, that sort of adventure style, continuous camera, uh, camera shot, which would be impossible with physical cameras, but you can do with advanced CGI graphics. And finally, there's us, the audience. We are indulging in our uh, lust for entertainment because we took three, maybe four hours of our lives to watch this movie, potentially pay 20 bucks to see it on a 3D IMAX screen. That is larger than most buildings in North America. Um, so that was sort of my big takeaway from all of this. It's like this movie is really about excess and greed at so many different levels. So that was my experience. I don't know about you guys, but that's what I thought. I mean, I also thought of it as the movie where it was like, hey, Legolas, how about you take those guys in an alley and just beat the crap out of them for 10 minutes? Just like go American History X on them. Just like smack their faces up against pillars and just like just like punch them a lot and stuff like that. Because uh, everyone knows that's the best part of The Hobbit is when Legolas goes medieval <laughs> on a bunch of people in a random city street. You're talking about towards the end in, in Lake Town? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, no, no, no. I know what you're talking about. That is, this is a movie that is – I mean, so – Greed, right? I want to I identify two different words here. Greed and hoarding, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's greed and, the, and lust for, for the possessions and for the riches and for the experience, you know, what might be termed like the culinary experience of consuming the movie, the entertainments of the movie, its pictures, its images. And then there is the sense that the dragon is hoarding these things, right? And that, like, the dragon is is lusting after all of these objects and is collecting them, but his collection of these objects does not sate his lust for them. If anything, it magnifies it, right? The more gold that Smaug wants gets the more gold that Smaug wants to the point where he is literally like asleep in a giant pile of gold coins, the bottom of which is unfathomably distant from the top, right? That, that rolls over him as he lumbers out of bed in the morning or the evening or whenever in a hundred years he decides to raise his head up. I mean, like, that is just, it is just, it's more than excess. It's, it's, a, it's a way of looking at possession in which excess is meaningless. There is no such thing as too much. If your utility increases, you know, if your utility per unit increases with every unit that you possess. 
And I wonder the degree to which that's also kind of an aspect of this movie in the sense that the enjoyments that we get uh, are not meant to sate us or satisfy us. They are but to lead us to further enjoyments, right? <laughs> they, figured, the dramas yeah. lead to further yeah. dramas. The romances lead to further romances. Like, it's not only – it's not good enough to have only, like, you know, one uh, stupid elf romance. You got to have the second one also. You know, you got to build up on these things. No, the one is so oh, it's stupid. That's not entirely fair. Because, you know, elves got to make a living, too, and get by. And, you know, everybody's trying to yeah. find love in the big city and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, it's just like – and, like, the guy in the, the elf king in the woods, right, who, like, I am the super-duper, you know, I wish I were Peter O'Toole. I'm chewing on the scenery so hard I need, you know, iron teeth, right? Like, um, <laughs> and, and I possess this great forest fortress, and, and, and it's not enough to do that. I also – I guess it is enough for him. Um, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest thing to me is, um, that's feeling of like, you know, you will not be satisfied by this. The studios will not be satisfied for this. They're just going to keep churning out as many Lord of the Rings movies as they <laughs> possibly can. Right. Like, I'm not quite sure what they're, like, we talked about this probably the last time we did a, a, a Hobbit podcast. Um, like what the hell they're going to do with the Lord of the Rings franchise after they finish these three, uh, Hobbit movies. Right. They're just going to, um, you know, if they, if they can't get the intellectual property to any more of J.R.R. Tolkien's work, like the Silmarion and the, the other stuff, uh, they're just going to, I don't know, go back and remake Lord of the Rings. Right. Well, given the level of degree of faithfulness of The Hobbit, I think by the time we get to the Silmarillion, they could just make it like a beach party movie and nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like from Justin to Kelly, the Silmarillion. You know, like, <laughs> I'd be like, I don't remember, I don't remember Legolas and Fionor like having a dirt bike race. Like, I don't think Legolas and Fionor were alive at nearly the same time, and I don't think either of them had dirt bikes, uh, let alone custom-made dirt bike helmets that let their pointy elf ears out through the sides. Okay, well, so you mentioned uh, was it Theo Theonir, the other elf character? Oh man. Oh man! Did so you guys this, love there's this a guy lot to talk about. There's a lot of stuff to talk with about her, but uh, oh, not her! I thought you meant Thranduil. I was talking about Thranduil. You mean Toriel? I've totally lost track. The female elf, the one that they made up just for this. Uh, movie. The Sylvan not. elf Toriel. Yes, one of a variety of things in this movie that are nothing like the book. <laughs> they, they've, they've shown their willingness to just make up characters out of whole cloth that were not part of the yeah. canon and mm-hmm. give them prominent parts of the storyline. So yep. why not just keep doing that, right? Yes, there's an entire industry based on doing this exact thing to Tolkien's work. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. Right? Like it's just, <laughs> hey, let's just make up a bunch of random Tolkienish characters and do the same stories over and over again. And you know what? It's a lot of fun and it's awesome. And there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, if you want, I, like I want to reroll another elf archer, half mage, or whatever she is, right? Like <laughs> elf ranger guard, imperial guard feet kit, or whatever I have. Like, yeah, sure, get another sheet. We'll get I some think- Mountain Dews and some Doritos, and we'll make another one. <laughs> I think, I think Lord of the should move to TV next. There should be some sort of like um, uh, guards of Gondor procedural. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you have the guards just you know prosecuting minuscule crimes, but every episode has a tie-in with the broader Lord of the Rings mythos and the and the greater conflict with Sauron. Right, so it's just like you know, oh, book this other guy, and then cut away. Meanwhile, bum 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 bum. And get the flaming eye, flaming eye, flaming eye, and then cut back to the guards of Gondor. Guards of Gondor, special, special, Minas Tirith unit. Is that what it is? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, you know what you do is you, you don't set it at Minas Tirith. You set it at Minas Morgul, right? Because there isn't a lot that happens at Minas Morgul. Well, it isn't, so Minas Morgul is, or Minas Ithil, right? It's like the other tower. Uh, that's, oh gosh. I'm, I, yeah, that's different from the Black Tower that's actually in Mordor. That's the I don't one. Know. You, you have a lot of precincts oh. that you can set this in, right? I think that's the point. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Look, I'm trying to pick the right, look, I'm trying to pick the right city in Gondor to set this thing, and I'm now realizing I just named entirely the wrong one, and I'm just totally on tilt. <laughs> I'm totally on tilt. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Are you about to jump in with something, Matt? Yeah, I'm just, just to just bring it back to the, the broader point we're getting at here, is that like I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this current uh, state of Lord of Rings that we're in right now. Uh, on one hand, I enjoyed a lot of things about this movie. On the other hand, I'm just, just like so worn out by the end of this nearly three hour run. Of, like, you know, I've, I've sat through what uh, six, almost six hours of the Hobbit at this point, And uh, I'm on the hook for another two and a half, at least for, um, uh, for there and back again. Right. I, I, I it, it's it's a little sickening. I mean, it's this, I'm describing this feeling of excess, right? It's like God, please, no war. And it's not just confined to um, to these Hobbit movies. I mean, everything that we've talked about with you know spiraling out characters and uh, overwrought special effects and movie times that spool out way longer than they're justified for. That applies to a lot of big action tentpole movies, right? Not just Lord of the Rings. It's just that we are a little bit hypersensitive to it because. Uh, that that the, the established canon for Lord of the Rings is uh, has some sense of a little more would be a little more sacred than oh I don't know like a Mission Impossible movie or Pacific Rim for example. I mean I thought this one moved along fairly briskly, but maybe I just was taking a lot more pleasure in it than I really had any right to. By uh, that's a that's a rough thing to say. I had every right to enjoy this movie. I paid I actually only paid six seventy five a ticket for it because I saw a matinee during a big snowstorm at an yeah. movie theater. Yeah, well we, that, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I, I sell yeah. that twenty bucks for three D IMAX. Oh, see that's oh you see and I saw I saw it in the uh, again the high frame rate. You know, 48 frames per second, 3D. Yeah, speaking of excess, you got twice as many frames in your movie than we got. I know. I, I was so I was <laughs> You're so hoarding full. your frames, Matt. Oh, smog. So, like so, a resident of the Capitol, I had to go to the bathroom in the middle and, and you know, uh, uh, shed the excess frames, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so here's the thing. I guess, hypothetically, we're supposed to be enjoying these, these movies that we go watch just in general. Just like movies in general. The, the experience of watching the movie should be a fun way to spend your time. And if you're at a point where it's not fun, then you got to ask some pretty important questions about what's going on. And I feel like this was connected. Peter, it's, been a wonder, it's been wonderful having you on Overthinking It these last five years. But, uh... <laughs> it probably doesn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But yes. so, so this... <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no I, I, sorry. I was going to mess with you some more, but go, go for it. Make your series. No, no, by all means. By all means. We lost Pro Tool today, so I, we're all a little bit on edge. So everybody gets a few free pot shots at their neighbors. Um, but no, no, no. I've earned it. I've earned all sorts of. If you want to take pot shots, sound off in the pot shot comments. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no. I'm sorry. If you think Pete Fenzel is a winner, uh, sound <laughs> off in the comments and, and leave a comment that says Pete Fenzel is a winner in my book. Uh, and, uh, and, and by the way, you can also optionally say, and Matt should not pick on him so much. Um, yeah. So, okay. Pete, what happens? What happens to the the film going experience when we don't? When we stop? Sort of when it stops being a source of kind of immediate enjoyment. So, when the film going experience ceases to be uh, an, an ongoing enjoyment, then the movie must provide alternative sorts of value in order to be worth watching. 
right? So it has to be significant or artistically interesting or it has to teach you something, uh, right? Or it has, it has to rise to some sort of other level, right? And, and I mean, this is usually fine uh, or often it is fine uh, because often we see movies that we don't really enjoy that do do these things, right? You know, like movies that are really significant or, you know, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm thinking about like movies like what, like Amour, which I did not see. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of a movie I did see. Um, I thought you were talking about something like R.I.P.D., which was not a good movie, but provided value in that it gave us something interesting and oh, fun no, to talk no. about. I mean, R.I.P.D. I felt like had moments of it. R.I.P.D. was was not like this. No, I guess no, 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 the no. enjoyment that I got out of R.I.P.D. was in trying to figure out and conceive of a movie that would have been like R.I.P.D. but better. And that yeah, challenge yeah. was itself so challenging because <laughs> its problems were so just like spideringly woven through. They like the thick IMAX 3D spider webs that the R.I.P.D. was hurtling through and, and wrapping itself in simultaneously uh, were just so dense and, and mucusy that, uh, it, that in untangling them itself was its own reward. But no, um, what I'm, I'm, I'm most thinking more about kind of art films or films that are instructive, you know, films that have important political or human messages, right? Like there's a bunch of times, you know, we talked about Captain Phillips recently, and there's a lot of times in Captain Phillips where you're not really having a very fun time. But there are stories about people, and those are meaningful and they're rewarding. And so there's other things that you like about it. Now, this is like a huge topic. Right, this is an enormous topic. This idea of oh, well, what do I like about this movie other than that I am having enjoyment and pleasure and and sort of glee at the prospect of watching it. Um, there is a particular sort of I think dichotomy that exists in the fantasy genre specifically around this, and it's not quite a zero sum game. It's not quite a trade off, but it can feel that way sometimes. And I'm, I want to talk. I'm talking about the the trade off between. Um, enjoying kind of synchronically, by which I mean, you know, all things, all points in time being the present. All the points in time that matter are the present, uh, right? Enjoying the symbols and characters and situations of the fantasy paradigm versus enjoying them in the context of the lore and world building that surrounds them, right? Um, And what I'm talking about is, you know, when you see Viggo Mortensen on the screen with a hood on, is he, you know, a, is he Strider or is he, you know, Aragorn, the Isildur, not the, the heir to Isildur, Elisar, the Elfstone, right? Like, is he the, you know, the, the king returned? Is he like of the, you know, the blood of the men of, oh gosh, I forget all of the names. But, but I don't want to belittle that sort of pleasure because there is a real pleasure in the texture and complexity of these worlds that are built around these things. But I think... One of the things that I was feeling as I was watching The Hobbit 2, Hobbity Boogaloo, or <laughs> whatever, Barrel Boogaloo, whatever you want to call it, um, was, was that the elves and the dragons and the hobbits and the dwarves and the orcs, they were so just, just chopped off, just like the umbilical cords connecting them to the lore of the Tolkien world were so like thoroughly and swiftly severed that I was forced to enjoy them on a much more surface level uh, for the sort of, um, I don't know whether it's issues of shape and color or just, you know, I mean, I know there are resonances, but it feels more synchronic. It feels more like something you react to with a childlike wonder, like, ooh, that's a wizard, right? When, when Gandalf smacks his staff against the ground and a sphere of light blasts from his staff in all directions, 
right? Like, you know, there's he does this a couple times. He does it in the Hobbit movie when he's like, I gotta find the bad guys. And then he does it in the Lord of the Rings movie when he's like, you shall not pass. And he confronts, you know, the Balrog from the depths, which was with Melkor in the first age, right? And they plunge into Casa Doom. And, you know, and, and there's a real weight and significance and association with the world and a deep sense of, of narrative reward in the thou shalt not pass moment from the Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf plunges into the darkness. But in The Hobbit 2, Barrel Boogaloo, when he smacks his staff against the ground, it's like, that's a wizard, right? Like, it's like, oh, he's a wizard, right? And, and I felt like that seems, you know, we're overthinkers. Uh, hypothetically, we might, this would be a kind of thing that we frown upon. But let's overthink, let's, you know, go through the keyhole, let's go down the rabbit hole, let's turn ourselves inside out and, and, and think about, you know, what it is to, to enjoy things on that kind of a superficial level. And I felt like there was a way that I had fun with the visual representations of the characters, their voices, their movements in this movie, and, and really appreciating that all these symbols are things that are, are used in storytelling because they are on their own enjoyable and captivating. And they don't necessarily require all this texture and depth. Well, it, it's funny that you're taking this angle with, uh, with all these aspects of the movie – um, because one of my complaints that I was sort of alluding to earlier was that everything you said that everything was sort of like the umbilical cords to the larger lore of Lord of the Rings was, was was severed, right? And so you were forced to enjoy these things at just a superficial level. I thought that it's sort of slightly different angle that these things they were the movie was straining very hard to reattach that umbilical cord back <laughs> to the larger uh, lore of things, right? That the the orcs weren't just off hunting the hobbits just because they were because they were sent off by Sauron. All right. And then like Gandalf doesn't just disappear from uh, the story just for the hell of it. He's off like chasing down, figuring out what the big evil thing is out there. And he runs into Sauron. Right. (laughs) Sauron. (laughs) I mean, this is what I was joking about earlier with like guards of Gondor. You know, we have like every every episode you have a random cutaway to (laughs) I have Sauron. I have Sauron. Well, yes. But here, but think about even the eye of Sauron moment. Right, where, where Gandalf is confronting. I mean, the first thing I want to say is like, you know, th- is that we all need, we should all say a little serenity prayer about trying to like follow the Hobbit franchise as in its desperate urge to justify itself, right? Where it's just like, oh, you know, like, let me, let me accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, <laughs> and the wisdom to know the difference, right? I'm never going to be satisfied by the efforts of the Neo-Hobbit franchise to contextualize itself in the greater lore of Tolkien. And I also kind of feel like there's part of the greater lore of Tolkien where, like, really awkward failure to make the continuity work is sort of part and parcel of the package, right? It's just like, you know, well, you know, it's, it's, he's basically, Tolkien's the original Tupac in terms of, like, posthumous release of subpar work, right? And it's just like, um, <laughs> not all of Tupac's work is below his general expected value, but much of it is. Um, but yeah, but it's like, so on one hand, yeah, I know. I know that there's parts of The Hobbit that they waste where they're trying to make the necromancer into a big deal and they show Galadriel and all that stuff. And I'm saying that if you want to enjoy The Hobbit movies, you kind of have to give up on that and realize it's not. Okay, okay. But on that I will agree with you, yeah. That's also a cop-out based on what I was saying before. And I, and I will add to it. I will look on the other side and I will back up what I said before in – Think about the confrontation between Gandalf and the Eye of Sauron in this movie versus the first time that you see the Eye of Sauron in the Fellowship of the Ring, 
right? Which I think is when it's like one who has seen the eye, right? Or is it when he's on top of the the mountain? Like the the eye sort of emerges and it, and is brilliant and terrible and and impossible to behold, right? And I think it's only there for like a fairly brief moment the first time that we see it, and certainly for a couple of successive times after that, it's only there for like a very very brief moment. And it's this foreboding thing that, we, and the reason that we care about it is that we know it's going to be important later. Right, but it also is this terrifying image. So this movie, they're like, stare at this thing for twenty seconds, right? It's like, ah, oh, he's the body, he's the eye, it's flaming. It's like you're, yeah. you're running. Zoom down. in, zoom in, zoom yeah. in. Enhance, You know, like yeah, you're talking about excess. And this movie being an exercise and a display of excess, right? That scene was the perfect example of what I were talking about. I mean, right? that, that is Sauron. a good spider spirit. Sauron! 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 But what I mean is that the Eye of Sauron is presented to you as an object of visual interest from which, and like slight semantic interest from which to derive kind of like giddy childlike enjoyment and or wonder or fear, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is not presented to you as like one of the last of the enemies, great enemies of the Valar and Middle Earth, right? Who's like an uh, unfathomable evil from an earlier age. It's like, oh, it's a bad guy. It's a bad guy, right? Like, um, so, I mean, it is, in, it is narrative, you know, I feel like it was written into the script, it must have been, with the idea of connecting to the earlier movies, but it also is kind of undoing the earlier movies while it's connecting them, or failing to connect to them while it's trying to connect to them, or whatever, I don't know. But, um... Yeah, I mean, like, what, everybody said all of these things about the Star Wars prequels as well, right? I don't think it's fair to compare the Hobbit prequels to the Star Wars prequels. I don't think that they fail quite so hilarious. It's not. And also, an important thing, distinction to make is that the Hobbit, right, was of course written before uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, but there's this sort of very awkward relationship between the Hobbit story and the Lord of the Rings story, both in textual form, you know, as novels as well as as the movies that we're seeing right now. Right? You so want to talk about that? Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, about just that. as a quick reminder, and I'm not super familiar with this, so just from my uh, you know Wikipedia research doing that I did before uh, j- jumping onto this podcast, my understanding is that uh, you know he wrote the Hobbit, um, and then he was commissioned to write. Lord of the Rings, right? And I, I believe after he wrote the Lord of the Rings, he went back to revise The Hobbit to improve its continuity and connection with the Lord of the Rings, right? In particular, yeah. the, the part about where um, Bilbo gets the ring of power from yeah. Gollum, right? Originally, it's just like he gets the ring that turns him invisible, but he went back and really heightened up this idea that Gollum lost his precious and this is a very important ring. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that The Hobbit is a children's book. Um, it is It is not the sort of tome that the Lord of the Rings books are. And even then, the Lord of the Rings books, the three of them, they're not quite so ominous and thick as many of their successors in the genre are. But, but even more – but they do have all sorts of old songs and imaginary languages and whatnot. But The Hobbit is a fairly brisk novel for young readers. Um, I would venture to say – I certainly when the Lord of the Rings books came out – I believe the general critical consensus was that The Hobbit was better, that, this would, that the Lord of the Rings books were kind of a step down from The Hobbit as sort of zero to 60 books to be enjoyed by a reader who has no vested interest in, like, this world or this mythology or any of this stuff, right? It's that, like, and, the, and The Lord of the Rings really wasn't all that super-duper popular for, like, decades after it was released and was then sort of discovered later and, and in the by 60s. Le- by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Yeah, by Led Zeppelin, personally, by by Jimmy Page, who uh, who put on the the uh, the he picked up the guitar pick of power and was corrupted by its influence. <laughs> but but the Hobbit is 
it's a children's book. It's less. Uh, it is. It is similarly to the movie. It is less invested in the lore. Uh, the, if, if there's like a if there's a mixture between sort of like present day, the importance of the events that are happening now versus the importance of events that have happened long ago. In The Hobbit, the importance of the events that are happening right now are much, much more important relative to the events that have happened in the past, relative to The Lord of the Rings, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so similarly, I feel like but, – but of course, and then the Peter Jackson Hobbit kind of blows this out, uh, right, where it's like, well, there's more inconsistencies in The Hobbit. The Hobbit doesn't really connect as much with the big story of the rings and the Silmarils and all that stuff. It kind of has to be forced to do it later after the fact. And all of these things are like blown out to ten by Peter Jackson's interpretation, where they're basically children's movies with tons of decapitations in them. Right, like they're pretty. There's like they've got more songs, and they've especially the first one had more music and had kind of like zany chase scenes that wouldn't be out of place in like Despicable Me, right? Like you know, people running around in, in the mountain caves and whatnot, the little minions and goblins and such. Um, except that then everybody's head is being chopped off every five seconds. Um, in this one, you even had one of my favorite moments in the whole movie where I think it was Legolas decapitates an orc and the orc head flies at the camera and bounces off yep. the imaginary CGI <laughs> camera shaking our view of the action. Did that really happen? <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, not really. It's Legolas. not a real story. It's yeah. imaginary, Mark. No, no, no. But yes. yeah. I mostly <laughs> recall Legolas chopping the head off like gladiator style, right? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> I mean, this is sort of like, uh, what is it, Star Trek Nemesis, the one where Patrick Stewart gets to ride a dune buggy for the first time. <laughs> it's like, oh, like, yeah. it's like, I just want to just chop people's heads off left and right with a sword. <laughs> I want to be the cool guy. Like, well, you're not in this movie, Orlando Bloom. He's like, uh, I'll, you, you, you darn well know that I'll bring at least $50 million worth of receipts. Just let me chop <laughs> off some heads. All right, okay. Fair enough. We need to get you. We need to get somebody. Um, but yes, but I feel like the relationship between the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies is kind of like both a through the looking glass and a times 10 uh, mirror, you know, uh, reflection of the relationship between the Hobbit book and the Lord of the Rings books. Less serious, less rooted in the lore, less internally consistent, uh, more retconned and revised after the fact, um, and certainly playing to a mass audience. Uh, like self-consciously playing to a mass audience. And I would also add to that that I feel like a bunch of the images and scenes and tableaus that are really important to the Hobbit story are kind of better than the ones that are in the Lord of the Rings. And I'll posit that to you guys. Like, like is, there real, is there an image in the Lord of the Rings that has the same kind of level of just basic captivation as the image of the giant dragon asleep under the giant pile of gold, right? Sure, or of the, the like, the dragon eye opening, right? And the, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know, Bilbo, sta- uh, Bilbo standing next to the, to, the, what, to the enormous open eye that is, you know, partially concealed by the, by the Scrooge McDuck stacks. There's at least two layer, layers of complexity that make the Eye of Sauron, you know, less intuitive, like, less wonderful, right? More textual, more complex, not as, not as much of a wow moment, I think, um, just sort of in terms of its elegance. But elegant is probably one, a good word for it. Just a combination of simplicity and beauty. 
Um, you know, Bard, Bard the Bowman, or Bard the Bargeman, as he is in this movie. You know, Bard the Bowman and the Black Arrow, right? And Garion and the Black Arrow. Uh, and, like, the one scale that's loose under the dragon's shoulder. I feel like this is, these, I mean, there's even a music to casual explanations of these things, right? They just, they're just connected. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons Tolkien is drawn to writing this sort of stuff, is because it's just, there's, it's in the language. There's something in the language that's pretty. And, and there's something in these symbols that has a lot of, of just just beauty and depth in the way that stories exist. Is that really inferior to like throwing the ring in the crack of doom? I mean like I don't know. It's, it's it seems pretty special. It seems like if I had to pick just one or the other. If I had to pick any one if oh, I Oh yeah, yeah, enough- exactly. If you get Mount Doom, if you get a volcano at the center of Mount Doom, right? Yeah. Or a dragon under a pile of gold, what are you going to go with? And you go with yeah. the dragon under the pile of gold, no question, yeah. right? Yeah, like it, like the t- there's a lot of moments in the Lord of the Rings and in the Hobbit that are analogous. You know, there's the the chase in the barrels is is very similar to when Arwen rescues the group by you know the magical spell that sweeps the uh, was it the Naz the Nazgul away with the it's represented in the movie with the horses that charge down the river, right? Like uh, this idea that the elves come by and and like elvish intervention in some way like saves our, our heroes. Um, in this case, it's you know barrels, uh, you know of, of old elvish wood that they're riding as they escape. I feel like the one in the Hobbit is a better escape scene. Uh, and not just because the one in the movie is so freaking awesome, um, but also just because it just feels one-to-one like it makes more sense. And it's something that I would be more excited to hear about. Now, once you add everything in the Lord of the Rings up together, there's an aggregate quality that provides a payoff that's pretty impressive and pretty awesome. But bit by bit, piece by piece, individual tableau by individual tableau, especially if you're like telling them all to a child, I feel like The Hobbit kind of wins it. Um, I mean, the scones are tastier, the golems are darker and, and creepier and in deeper caves, right? Like, the, the treasures are bigger, you know, the, the, the towns, the, even the human towns. You know, Lake Town is so much better than Bree, right? Like, and, huh. and Gond- Minas Tirith is kind of a boring place to hang out. Like, we never really meet anybody in Minas Tirith who's all that injured, whose life outside of the events that are transpiring is at all interesting, Right, like, like what, like, oh, I wonder what Faramir does on a Tuesday. I mean, that's the joke of Agents of Gondor, right? Is that like nobody cares what happens in Gondor except the Gondor people are dying, right? Like nobody. That's why they the whole end of the Return of the King is the most controversial part of the whole series, not just in the movies but in the books too, because nobody cares about freaking Gondor. Like nobody there has a life that's at all something that we would identify with or be excited to see. Now. You know that the end of the Return of the King. No, there's got to be a lot of stonemasons putting up those, you know, I don't know, giant edifices in the the sides of the mountain, right? I suppose, although maybe they have to craft them with magic or something because the walls, the wall. There's so much in Tolkien where it's like we don't have the technology to do this anymore. The walls are so beautiful, the stones are so beautiful. So much that's been beautiful in the world has been lost and can't be replicated. But this is, I mean, this is, and I think that it's time now to to sort of invoke the. Uh, the Tolkien was a linguist uh, discourse, yeah. right? And and I think the idea, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is we're very very far outside of my my area of fandom. But um, uh, the the whole idea is that like when he the the revisions of the Hobbit and the whole the whole Cimmerian and um, Lord of the Ring project was sort of was uh was philological right was yep. that it, that is to say like as these um 
if if this were a document, if I were producing a document. Uh, no, rather, if this document had been produced at some point uh, in the history of of this civilization, right? What are the conditions under which this document could have been produced, right? And right. what are what is the nexus of forces and events, circumstances that would have led to the to the production of this document? And that's a very different question from. Um, how do I tell an awesome story? Right. Yeah. How do I captivate? Like, yeah. Right. You know? Um, yeah. so, so I, right. I think that that's the, that, that's the, that that's the difference. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a, sh- it's sort of a shame, right. In the, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's sort of a shame in, in geek chauvinism, right. That the, the, the pleasures of kind of completest, You know, rectitude and internal consistency um, can can take pleasure can can take precedence over the pleasures of uh, of things that are awesome. Does that make sense, Pete? What I'm trying to say, and Mark, uh, do do, do the two of you see see what I'm I'm trying to say? That that like the idea that the idea that a a finely detailed work of of world building with many languages is better than an awesome fire breathing dragon is uh, is I don't know is I I think represents a a diminishment in our capacity for for awesomeness. I think there's an intermediary spot, though, and I think this, like, we talked briefly about Downton Abbey at the beginning of this uh, episode, and I'll, I'll invoke Downton Abbey again. So if you've ever watched any of our Downton Abbey recaps, you know that, that we usually look for a scene, usually involving the Dowager Countess, the Maggie Smith character, about a third of the way into the episode, where someone has a conversation, usually with her, or maybe with somebody else, which seems totally unrelated to the plot, but if you take it out of context, and then uh, associate it with each of the A, B, and C plots of the episode actually explains everything that's happening, right? There's usually, like, a scene where, where like, the Dowager Countess will be insulting somebody's dress as not being appropriate for the times or whatever, and then there'll be a bunch of other plots about things not being appropriate for the times. And the trick is that this scene about a third of the way episode has been ex- is explained to you how everything works. And with The Lord of the Rings, this scene is the Tom Bombadil scene, which is where... Tolkien pulls back the curtain and says, this is about awesome songs and stories. And this is like, he literally takes a character who is a doll that he plays with his, what, his grandkids or his nieces with, right? This Tom Bombadil was, an I think, a little physical doll with little yellow boots. And he named it and he would dance it around and sing little songs and it would amuse the children. And he puts Tom Bombadil in the story as this, you know, supremely powerful cosmic being, right? Uh, and the songs that Tom Bombadil sings are like the wor- some of the world's most powerful magic. Even to the point where, yes, you can go through in the lore and explain the relative, oh, you know, oh well, eventually Tom Bombadil would also fall to Sauron and all this other stuff. But you know, in the context of what's happening, it's a real discontinuity where we jump outside of the level of reality that's established, and we're told like the songs that this little doll sings. Are the best songs in the world. And uh, um, 
that's sort of telling you about what the Lord of Rings is about, which is that, you know, the Ents are singing the songs about the Ent wives, and the Hobbits have their own songs and stories, and there's all the old stories of Gondor, and, you know, Theoden has to, like, rise up and, and, and get away, you know, get away from failing to enjoy life, and, and there's this idea of song and story as, as a sort of organizing force, a motivating force, you know, a reason to live, a beautiful thing. So there's the pleasure of the fire-breathing dragon that you're talking about. Right. And then there's like the pleasure of the world and the complexity of the world and, uh, you know, the history and all that stuff that you're also talking about. But then there's also like the pleasure of the book and the written word. Um, right. And I think that that's kind of like what happened was Tolkien was writing a book that was sort of about the pleasure of the written word and lucked into a work of world building that people really liked. And then it is through the reading of the Lord of the Rings, not the writing of the Lord of the Rings, but the reading of the Lord of the Rings, that this world building becomes so powerful in people's minds. It becomes such a dominant thing in people's minds. And, and so – and then, and then the people talking to each other about it becomes an extended work, even more important than the various lost tales that come from Tolkien himself. The conversations that everybody has about the world building become themselves an extension of this artistic project, uh, the, the sort of scope of all this stuff. So um, there is something sad when the pleasure of the fire-breathing dragon, the pleasure of the well-written book um, – where, where this third pleasure, this, this pleasure of, which I've put second before, but now I'm putting third, this pleasure of the extended universe, right? The, when the pleasure of the extended universe is the only pleasure, it is the primary pleasure, it is the foremost pleasure. And other pleasures that attempt to draw focus away from the pleasure of the extended universe, and I know I'm not speaking strict because canon- canonical things are counted in this, but I'm just I'm using it as a blanket term. Anything that draws away from that is bad or wrong. And I think that that loops back to what we're talking about before, where this is a thing that we look to for pleasure when the other things aren't producing pleasure. Right. And that's sort of that the model for that is asceticism. The model for that is kind of religions of puritanistic self denial. Sure. Where it's like I am a better person because I am not enjoying myself. Or 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 suffering in the way that used to energize me in the past, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at cultures based on grievance, and my primary uh, knowledge of this is based on, you know, a class I took in college, and you may have taken too, Pete, about, and Mark also, about uh, early Christianity and the the way asceticism came to um, came to replace persecution, right? As the yeah. as the sort of central feature of of uh, a certain d- segment of early Christian practice, right? Um, uh, that is to say, the persecution turned inward. <laughs> yeah, uh, in when, the form when nobody of- is trying to martyr you anymore, you have to beat yourself up so that you can get the pleasure that you want to get out of feeling terrible, right? Like, yeah, you create myths of people getting the wounds of Christ in their hands and yeah. feet. You right. basically declare a war on, war on Christmas on yourself, right? Because no one is actually declaring war on Christmas. <laughs> but I, I right. mean, I don't know. I want to. I, I want to like. I want to kind of tinker around in what you've said a little bit, Pete. Because like, uh, I, I like the the. Um, the point you make about the pleasure of the the written word, but I wonder if if for Tom Bombadil and for the Ents both, and you know, please correct me if I'm wrong because it's been a while. Uh, but um, it's it's really more the sp- the pleasure of the spoken word, right? And like the thing about the Ents is like there's not, you know, there's no paper. What would they make paper out of themselves? You know, it's a 
it's uh, it's this like it's this oral culture, right? And all the ants stand around in a circle and they sway back and forth and start like hum hum hum, uh, kind of singing singing together. And it's the low. Honestly, it's like my uh, perhaps my favorite part of Lord of the Rings is the ant mood. And they add they add the. Um, the hobbits to, you know, the poem that is the list of things that exist in the universe, right? And they painstakingly maintain this list, but they do it orally. It's, you know what I mean? It's not a written, it's not a written culture at all. And also like it's, it's, um, with Tom Bombadil, it's, it's songs and right. Like song, song is the genre that, you know, paper can't do justice to, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's performance. Yeah, because all songs are just like quatrains, and they're not particularly interesting when you're reading them. Sure, or you look like, at the or you look at the melody, and it doesn't. You look at the melody, you know, represented in some system of musical notation, uh, whatever it is, and it's it's um, it, it doesn't really capture the the experience because you know a song is a transaction between a singer and an audience, and it's an experience, right? And though you can you can notate certain things about that experience, you can't notate having the experience. Experience, right, and that's uh, you know. So it's you, you have kind of encoded in in this work, um, you know, the failure of oral culture uh, and the the sort of the rise of the written word and the the sort of the 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 trade off. I was about to say the tragedy of that, but it's not a tragedy because we get a lot in return yeah. for, for, you know, there, there is definitely an upside, which is why it happened. Um, uh, but the, the, tra- but there, there are things lost as well. So it's a, it's a trade off. Right. And, um, so you have this, uh, yeah, you have this, and that's and that's actually that's actually the 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 sort of interesting thing. That's one of the weaknesses of sort of extended extended universification, right? Of of works like this, because if you really are attentive to the to some of the central themes, it's about uh, oral culture, and and oral culture is where. Um, uh, oral culture is where the story shifts just a little bit with each telling, you know, or where it, it is adapted a little bit based on the audience. And it sort of grows. Uh, actually, actually, like, um, I, I think this is attributed to Tolkien, right? Like, uh, who, who, is, um, who is supposed to have said of the Lord of the Rings and of his whole uh, mythical universe, um, the tale grew in the telling. Right. And that, 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 uh, I don't know that that's, that that's something that is, um, lost when you transition to a strictly legalistic system of marks on paper, you know, and, and that that's the only thing that that's the, that that's the only thing that matters because you get into a whole, uh, you get into a whole kind of, um, police discourse of authenticity and legitimacy, uh, when you, when you are dealing in that marks on paper world, because who who is entitled to make those marks? Whose marks count? Whose um, you know uh, whose marks should be accorded what value by other people? Uh, whereas you know, I don't know when your mom is telling you a story or whoever told you stories. For me, it was it was my my mom. My mother was an incredibly imaginative storyteller who would just make up stories out of whole cloth about adventures that uh that my brother and i would have you know um in a like a magical world uh and used to tell us these things to go to sleep there is no question of like 
of consistency or or of well well wait hold on hold on one second you know there's no like uh, and there's no sort of whole regrettable kind of uh, deriding other people for being not geeky enough phenomenon uh, when your mom is telling you a story you know um, yeah and that's sort of what these Hobbit movies kind of are yeah I mean I feel like you're just I feel like you're both. Talking about the philological mission of the Lord of the Rings in general, and about the, the trends and culture that it describes, and you're talking about the relationship that you know Peter Jackson is sort of asserting, willingly or not, uh, with these very loose, you know, very um, you know, spun stories, you know, in the in the extended universe. We should probably get to some of the tweets that people sent us about the Hobbit before we run out of time on the podcast, right? Because I think we got some good tweets from people's asking us some questions about this. Smaug movie, uh, unless I miss my Smaug. I don't want to act smug, Smaug about it. <laughs> uh, g- well, good. Okay, so so let's let's go through these. Um, David yeah. Putney, who is Putney DM on Twitter, P U T N E Y D M, uh, talks about this sort of post nine eleven resonance of the Lord of the Rings and asks whether. Um, you think the Hobbit is kind of tapping into the zeitgeist? Now, I'm, I'm, um, uh, and and you too, Pete. I know because you've said so on the podcast. I'm I'm uh, reluctant to talk about post nine eleven um, anything because it's not like our culture's first experience of existential dread, right? Yeah, yeah. you should have should have been around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? If you thought, <laughs> you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to think that, like, you know, it could all be over right now. Right, you know, this could be yeah. this could be my last glass of uh, of delicious bourbon. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think the post nine eleven movie discourse is valid when we're talking about movies that specifically deal with uh, themes of terrorism and particularly with themes of urban destruction, like our urban environment being torn down by forces that have just completely come out of nowhere. Yeah. I think that is a valid thing, but um, I, I'm not inclined to view. Uh, Lord of the Rings and or the Hobbit movies through the lens of like nine eleven. No, so yeah. so here's the sure, but but here's the thing. I mean, here's the thing that I think is different. What's different is the threat model, right? If if you if you think about the Cold War, you know, you had these you had these sort of large monolithic, you know, great powers uh, that were opposed that were opposed to one another, and if something catastrophic. Uh, were to happen, it would be because of of great men in the great powers, right? And the threat the threat model for uh, you know non state sanctioned terrorism is is different from that. You know, it's more a I don't know a bottom up model. I I don't quite know. I haven't thought a great deal of how to uh, how to describe it. But in that in that sense, the um, Right, Lord of the Rings kind of flips this script a little bit in that the the great monolithic power uh, is the evil power, and the kind of ragtag band of insurgents uh, are are the good guys. Yeah, the know? Hobbit are the Mujahideen, basically. <laughs> I don't know. The Hobbits aren't Mujahideen. The Hobbits aren't even fighters. That's how it flips the <laughs> yeah, script: yeah, yeah, is that the protagonist I, 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 who has yes, the power is the person who likes tea, not the person who likes fighting. Right, like it's the person who takes pleasure in life is the person who's powerful in the Lord of the Rings. Although that's also different between the um, the books and the movies because the Hobbits are so dis, you know, relatively de-emphasized in the perspective with which the movies are made. But yeah, um, I hear what you mean. I hear I hear you're clucking, big chicken. Uh, <laughs> I only I generally only like to talk about post nine eleven movies when I'm talking about Ang Lee's Hulk, which I think of as the quintessential post nine eleven movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I won't get into that now because we don't have another two hours of podcast time. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Atlas Burke, J Atlas Burke on Twitter, uh, who is by the way, the producer of nerds like us, which is a movie screening series in Los Angeles, which you should check out, uh, if, uh, you live here, um, where they do late night movies, uh, sort of geek cinema classics. And, um, if you've seen the movie, if you, if you haven't seen the movie a bunch of times, you come and watch the movie. If you have seen the movie a bunch of times, a, uh, an audio commentary is made available to you, um, to watch the movie. Uh, to watch the movie with, and it also uh, often features people from the Geek Agenda podcast and our friend Tom Powers. Uh, and uh, I was on one of these uh, once for the the um, for the Firefly movie Serenity. Um, so uh, Jaitlisberg says, uh, "My my roommate's review walked out slowly, shook her head, and sighed. Bullshit. Uh, well, sorry, she didn't oh. enjoy it. Um, serious question though. Did you notice the diversity in Lake Town? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Sorry, you can, you can read the rest of the question I was just responding very positively to the first part of it Says, uh, it was odd because Lord of the Rings is like the one movie where uh, the the all white the standard practice of an all white cast is actually justifiable because it's an English fantasy mythology. It's a you know, and this sort of Anglo Saxon ness is sort of baked baked into it. I'm I'm elaborating on on uh, J at J Atlas Burke B U R K E's point, but uh, you know what it, what what was your response uh, other than it was awesome to the um, to the diversity in Lake Town. I thought that it was cool. I, one of the things that I like about it, I, there was a one shot. Um, there's one shot of a woman who had very, I think it's repeated. And she had, uh, I don't know how to describe this uh, effectively, but she had like very distinctly like African features, right? Like she had, specifically, she had like really big eyes and brand big cheekbones. Um, and that were like, uh, that were that were very and they were lit very clearly, so you could like very tell, very much tell that this actress was uh, of, of African descent of some kind. And um, I, there was something about the way that that face was responding to the talk of the prophecy or whatever and all this stuff, where I felt like it was communicating effectively the emotion in a very specific, very iconic way. And I felt like it was earned. I felt like it was organic. I felt like this was a person who, because the movie, because the movie has a bunch of different tableaus and symbols and, and images that are like either stock images or drawn from one sort of tradition or another that reflect a certain way of thinking or feeling. And I was like, this African face is feeling the way about this story, the way that I would hope a face would feel. Right, uh, and I feel like that there was something. It was just interesting, and it was surprising, and it was cool. I think that from a storytelling standpoint, um, one of the implications of it is that this is a place where people used to come and go from great distances. Right, that, that Lake Town is a, used to be a center of trade, used to be a center of migration, and isn't anymore. Um, and thus, that's why it isn't homogenous. I feel like if we want to sort of contextualize it, that made sense. But I also sort of felt like the movie, these, the Hobbit movies are a bit self-conscious about the racial politics of the Lord of the Rings series, which was really kind of not great at times, especially the way the Uruk-hai were portrayed with re- relative to the white actors. You know, like the Uruk-hai orcs were very clearly black and I know that in the story, you know, orc is, you know, shadow or whatever, and, and they're a different color. But, like, it felt 
uncomfortable at times, the degree to which the orcs were sort of like African savages. Um, and I felt like they've done a better job with the character design. Or I won't say better because it's hard to say that this was an obligation they should have recognized from the get-go. Like, I think it's more like they made the movie and then they look at the movie. We look at the movie after and we're like, oh, that doesn't look so good. Right, yeah. like that doesn't like Saruman and the Urukai is kind of an uncomfortable relationship. Certainly, the Urukai towering over Boromir is kind of uncomfortable. Kind of would be better if there were a better way to do this, but I'm not quite sure how they would do it. I feel like the way the orcs are designed in the Hobbit movies, with a bigger variety of diversity of color, certainly with bigger variety of diversity with their faces look, um, I feel like it makes them it, it frees them a little bit from this relatively justifiable indictment of being pretty racist. And so I think making the people of Lake Town diverse is also kind of a self-conscious correction, but it also sort of feels like a correction, feels like an apology, which I don't think is entirely unwarranted, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think about it? I think there should have been more Asian people in Lake Town. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, they put African people in it. Like, where are the Asians? There's no Koreans in Lake Town. I kid. You think I Koreans can't fight dragons? Koreans can't fight dra- fought dragons for their entire history. They have boats that are dragons. <laughs> there, are, there are places in our popular culture to have, you know, constructive discourses around race. I don't think Lord of the Rings is the, is the best place for it. Just Come because on. it's, you know, it's like the, the fantasy world. Like, you know, the, when, when you hear the dwarves, you know, they're like, oh, I hate these elves. And the elves are like, oh, I hate these dwarves. Where, you know, are those dwarves. Se- where are our secret desires more clearly and truly portrayed than in our fantasies? You know, like, like if you want to know about the dynamic between nerds and jocks, like, look at the fantasies about nerds and jocks. Don't look at the way that we actually talk about them in real life, right? Like, yeah, there's, a lot, there's a lot of truth in Revenge of the Nerds that isn't in a lot of other portrayals of things. Um, even the, the cruel truths, even the nasty truths, um, you know, like, like the, how the nerd's fantasy is to sexually assault the cheerleader in Revenge of the Nerds, which is super uncomfortable. But, like, that fantasy is something that was part of our, is part of our culture. And certainly, like, the sort of – I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's awful. I think that it's secret and bad, and it's not portrayed because people don't want to be held accountable for it. But if you're like, oh, I want to be with a beautiful, fair-skinned elf, and the evil Urukai with their dark skin are going to kill all my relatives, like, I feel like that, that reflects something about you. I feel like it reflects <laughs> something about you even more than are telling a real story, which there are only white people. Because you could make them anything. That's the thing. So, so Pete, like, if I tell oh, a story yeah. – yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make them any color, right? You could. It's a fantasy. Like I think people said that about they said that about like Game of Thrones or whatever. It's like you know you can make them any color. It doesn't really matter. Or Star Trek, right? Like it's like they don't have to be this. You don't have to be telling this story. Um, if I were telling a story about my real life experiences, I might want to keep people looking the way they happen to look in real life, which might reflect like actual real life migration patterns and economic realities I have no control over. But like. You know, if you're making up the nation of the beautiful elves with their beautiful jewelry and their fancy forest houses, like, you're the, it's, it's you. You're painting you. You know, like, so be aware of it. Um, yeah, and, and my, yeah. actually, my girlfriend walking out sort of pointed out the correspondence between the elves and the Targaryens, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that that's a, a fair point, given that, given that Tolkien is a big influence on George R.R. R. Martin, right? Yeah. Down, I mean, to, George down to the R.R. Yeah, I mean George R. R. Martin is kind of a, a, a an apology for Tolkien in a lot of ways, um, in much the same, you know, in a sort of similar way, although with a great deal more complexity and nuance, right? Where it's sort of like Tolkien broke realities 
right? Broke, broke realities while he was telling his story for a bunch of reasons. And we're going to sort of go back to this core project and we're going to respect those realities. And these are the realities of like death and the realities of sex. And, you know, it's like, how come nobody in Middle Earth ever sleeps with anybody else? And the important people who die tend to come back, right? Like, it's like, you know, well, you know, how come the, the people don't care about the things that they care about in real life, like, like their politics, right? Like, how come these things aren't there? Um, it's a self-conscious attempt to sort of, of recreation. It's like a destructive, strong misreading, I guess, sort of, but with a sense of correction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's, let's move on. Um, so Jackson has been char- Oh, th- sorry. This is Daniel Chang, uh, who is Eragion, Eragion, E-R-I-G-I-O-N, uh, on Twitter, Daniel Cheng says, um, Jackson has been charged with writing bad va- fan fiction, and he links to an Atlantic piece, which I will uh, link to in the show notes. Um, though I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I got to tell you, Daniel, I'm not loving the indirect attribution so far. Jackson has been charged with writing bad fan fiction. That, that, that passive voice just rubs me the wrong way. Um, uh, his, his OTP, his one to repairing is Kate and a dwarf. Uh, what's yours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I ship, uh, Legolas, whoever happens to be in the barrel, you know, uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to ship Bilbo and a giant steaming rabbit game pie. It's, like, it's a really delicious pie. I feel like there hasn't been enough pie in, in the second half of the movie. Yeah, I thought you were saying, I'm going to ship Bilbo and Smaug. Smaug! Yes. <laughs> Middle, Earth, Middle Earth pie. But that's uh, what they do in Starring, in Jason, starring Jason Biggs. Sm- as, uh, that's, that's what Shrek is, has in it, right? Is Smaug gets shipped with the donkey. <laughs> Well, I mean, also, there's the whole meta casting thing, right, where, um, <laughs> where Bilbo is played by Martin Freeman and Smaug is voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, right? The whole Holmes and, um, Holmes and Watson thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's actually an interesting piece of meta casting, definitely. They have such a bromance, sense, <laughs> like, the special, right? Like, <laughs> um, so uh, Daniel Chen goes on to say, uh, but really, uh, how far should an adaptation go? Aren't, aren't they officially sanctioned fanfic, even if written by, even if written by the original author? Um, and, and I don't know, I, I want to take this one. I mean, all, all writing is fanfiction, right? Uh, the the because you are you are sort of responding to the environment in which you find yourself uh and sort of sort of creating something as a as a corrective to it i mean is is uh george r r martin tolkien fan fiction because he has the artistic project that that pete detailed just just a minute ago or or that is to say should we degrade his books because they are fan fiction because he has the artistic project right because he is writing something in relationship to his his predecessors you know but they didn't make up the characters well who cares who cares if they didn't make up the characters, right? Uh, all the people, you know, Ovid didn't make up the characters, you know? Uh, Homer didn't make up the characters. Um, and uh, I, it, for, for freak's sake, Shakespeare didn't make up the characters uh, a lot of the time, right? It's uh, a, lot of, a lot of writing and a lot of the history of literature has writers saying, okay, this is my version of, of such and such a story. This is a version that responds to the concerns of my time, uh, to my concerns, or that, that remedies what I take to be the, the mistakes or the excesses um, of the past, right? The 
the uh, the problem with fan fiction is when it's bad, right? When it's badly written, you know. Uh, the problem isn't. Um, a problem of authority or legitimacy. And the problem isn't really uh, a problem in the legal discourse of intellectual property, right? Uh, the, prob- the problem is whether it's good or, or, or whether it's bad. And I think all of these, from the, from the point of view of, uh, from the point of view of a, of, of a person who cares about art, right? Or from the point of view of a person who cares about stories and how they're told and how they're kind of repeated down through the ages, um, it's not uh, uh, these these other things that the sort of legal concerns and the 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 discourse of authority. These are sort of side concerns. Uh, it's a question of you know I don't know is the song you know does the song that this person is singing make you want to dance right? Is what what is the experience? Um, that's the concern. So so I'm afraid that we've responded to to almost all of these tweets by just sort of problematizing the the area that the the tweeter brings up rather than uh, actually answering their questions. Um, so so I don't know. Let's let's take a stab at it. Um, Aren't they? Uh, how far should an adaptation go? Stick a pin in that. Aren't they officially sanctioned fanfic, even if written by the original author? Uh, yes, and that's okay. Um, so now let's take up. How far should an adaptation go? Uh, I don't know. Should we do uh, Revenge of the Nerds Middle Earth edition? <laughs> I think you could. I mean, they've done. I'm sure they've done it. Isn't it called uh, Your Highness? Um, (laughs) or something like that i I would say the problem of fan fiction isn't when it's bad the problem of fan fiction is when it gives no pleasure um oh sorry that's uh, that's what i'm saying about that's what i mean by bad yeah yeah i just it reminds me of the brunching shuttlecock's geek hierarchy where like they have all of the different kind of geeks this is from like 2002 and the very very geekiest person is is people who write erotic versions of Star Trek where all the characters are furries like Kirk is an ocelot or something and they put a furry <laughs> themselves as the star of the story like that's like the person all other geeks consider themselves like the less geeky than um, and the funny thing about that is that while it is awful it is also hilarious and awesome and there's a certain pleasure in even reading the sentence right so there's a, there is a joy in fan fiction there is some joy in Mudville but yeah I feel like the degree to which which the story is relying on the weight and the context of the original series sets limitations on how far it should change as an adaptation, right? It's like it's like if you if you know you're making let's say an Indiana Jones movie, right? Like like the Crystal Skull does the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull doesn't get far enough away from the Indiana Jones franchise to justify its huge departures from the Indiana Jones franchise. Mm. It seems a little paradoxical, but it's like the, the more, the sort of less you lean on the things that have come before you for the core legitimacy of what you're doing, then the more freedom I feel like you have for what you're doing. A great example of this is another Peter O'Toole movie, uh, Troy, right? Which I think at the time, I remember we, I think we even podcasted about it. I really liked Troy, um, even knowing that it had very little to do with the Iliad. Because it was a story that was fun to watch, and it had fun energy, and it had fun characters, and um, it, it didn't really rely too much on the previous um, – the mood and the authority of the previous stories. Um, it, it had its own mood. It had its own authority in the telling. It had its own polish. It had its own tone, 
Um, and in that sense, it doesn't really need those other stories so much. And, but of course, this is a highly subjective thing. You know, I can say this about The Hobbit 2, that because the barrel chases are so fun, you know, and because the, the, the dragon is so devilish, and because, like, you know, the, the elf town girl living in an elf town world taking the midnight train to anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's like, because she, she's sort of just charming enough to get by that, like, okay, it doesn't really matter that you know, Legolas isn't in The Hobbit, right? Like, um, uh, and I mean, I've, I've, the thing is, I've also said the opposite of it many times, where I've, like, sort of scoffed at overly aggressive adaptations of Shakespeare or whatnot. But I think it also just has to do with how much are you deriving from, you know, the prestige of the thing that you're, you're part of. Look, I'm just going to say this. If um, having a dwarf do, like, go into berserker 360-degree spinning mode, if that is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe we'll leave it there. Maybe we'll leave our uh, our conversation there because it has been a uh, a special expanded um, edition of the Overthinking a Podcast. The Overthinking a Podcast extended universe. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and we're all an ocelot or something, and you can uh, write yourself in as the hero. So uh, if you would like to uh, find out more about the Overthinking It podcast, you can find us online. What am I saying? Find out more. If you want to, to reply to anything that we've said, you can email uh, podcast.overthinkingit.com, call 203-285-6401, uh, call or text, or uh, leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. Um, we uh, are, you know, winding down to uh, the holiday shop, the end of the holiday shopping season. So uh, thank you very much, everyone who has used the uh, affiliate links in our holiday gift guide on overthinking it. Um, we uh, we rely on the income from those to help set us up for the next year. So if you are doing your holiday shopping, we would be much obliged if you started from uh, the any of the Amazon links on overthinking it, which will provide us with a small kickback when you click through them, enter Amazon from one of our links and buy literally anything uh, that you want from Amazon, whether it's one of our awesome recommended gifts or not. So thank you for uh, using that and helping uh, to support overthinking it. There's also just saying there's a PayPal link on the, uh, uh, on the homepage of the, the site. So if you would just like to, to donate to us cash money, I mean, it's not donate. You can't like write it off on your taxes. But if you would like to give us a gift of cash money, uh, you can do that from the homepage of Overthinking It as well. We're very uh, grateful for that. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcasts next week. Uh, until then, you can find us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve Smaug! Hey, Mark, I have two questions for you. Yes. For you specifically. Okay. Do you think at the end of the movie they were trying to Terminator 2 the dragon or Alien 3 the dragon? <laughs> F- failing the answer to that question, I have a second question for you. <laughs>
<laughs> do you think that they were setting up the giant clay mold of the giant golden dwarf statue when the dragon came by the first time and they just sort of forgot about it? Or do you think that they've this whole time that Thorin's been away, he's like, oh man, I got to get back to Erebor because I got to finish the giant golden dwarf statue, right? Like, uh, do you think that, do you think that was just sort of like a thing that was set up and it was, uh, you know, it's something that, that they really, that was really important to make. And that, um, uh, that was what I was wondering is like, did they just leave it there? Was someone else working on it? Why were they making it in the first place? I, I want to know about the procurement rules behind uh, uh, the contracts to make that big dwarf statue, right? <laughs> like, you know, how many subcontracts down did that go? Uh, who was responsible for the molding? What kind of, um, what kind of liability insurance do these dwarves have on, on this project? Talk about the king under the mountain. Let's talk about the corruption under the mountain. 